welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts, practitioners and commentators to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to mention that Tax Banter will be an exhibitor at the Accounting Business Expo on 20 to 21 March at the International Convention Centre in Sydney at Darling Harbour. I'll be there on the Wednesday along with our marketing specialist and training manager and my Tax Banter colleagues will also be there on the Thursday so we'd love to see if you'd like to drop in and say hi. I would also like to welcome our international listeners who are joining us again and our list is growing. So welcome to uh, those in the United States, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, Taiwan, Spain, India, the Philippines, Denmark, Sweden, Thailand, Canada, the Ivory Coast. So we've now made it to Africa and the Maldives. Great to have you guys along, and uh, I'm sure you'll find today's episode interesting, which um, I'm about to introduce our speaker. Today, I'm joined by one of my colleagues here at Tax Banter, Michael Messner, who is a senior tax trainer. Michael has a Bachelor of Science in Banking and Finance with honours, a Master's in Science, Economics, a Master's of Business, Professional Accounting, and is a member of both CPA Australia and CPA Canada, and is a registered tax agent. Prior to joining Tax Banter, Michael worked in Tier 1 investment banks in Europe, Asia and Australia, before working for several years in public practice, where he developed significant experience in the taxation of trusts, non-residents and small business. Michael is very familiar with the taxation systems of Canada, Germany and continental Europe, the UK and Singapore, and it makes him an ideal person to have a chat to you today about international comparisons of our tax system. Michael, welcome to TaxIAC. Thank you very much for having me, Robin. It's great to have you here. Thank you. So internationally, there's a fair bit going on here, isn't there? That's right. Um, I was uh, born and raised in Singapore. Um, My mother was German. My dad is American. I was educated in the UK and in Singapore. And then I've worked internationally as well and ended up in Australia. Proud to be Australian and love it here. Mind you, our taxation system, unfortunately, that's the thing I'm struggling with. So uh, we definitely have a lot lot to talk to. We do. I think I've got the United Nations sitting in front of me. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Very good. All right. Well, the focus of today's discussion, we want to have a look at how our system stacks up against other equivalent countries. So the background to all of this, we've got um, obviously a personal tax system and a corporate tax system. And there's always talk about the OECD. What does this mean? Why is this relevant to our accountants and the practitioners that we talk to? So maybe you could just set the scene for us. Excellent question. Thank you very much, Robin. Um, Things are changing. We all know about this in the old days. We needed to be exactly where we had to work, where everything was happening. That was even um, commuting on a daily basis from our home to our office. These days are over. You now have um, staff that are working remotely through the internet, everything is in the cloud. You could be doing your tax and accounting work sitting at the beach in Pattaya and Thailand, or for example, in the Bahamas, like potentially some of our listeners, and paying a very low rate of tax. At the same time, obviously businesses, and especially capital is very mobile. We find that capital is more mobile than labor actually is. When did this shift? So if we go back, say, 100 years, beginning of the 20th century, We had the bricks and mortar businesses, uh, the factories, the production plants, and as you say, people went to work in their local city or town. 
When did all this shift? Are we talking 60s or are we talking closer to the end of the 20th century? Excellent question. While we actually had the Industrial Revolution happening in the 1800s and early 20th century, 1900s, um, it was really the information technology that started in the 80s that enabled that shift. That's also the internet. That is the internet very much. That's right. Modern telecommunication, it's all through the internet. Whether you use a software called Skype or WhatsApp or whatever is in the market doesn't matter. At the backbone of it is the internet. Very low-cost way of exchanging information data and that's the other aspect we have to look at as well we're talking about information data many of us are knowledge workers these days the knowledge is in our heads if we can exchange that data and use our heads with the data that is just in the cloud can be moved around that easily it doesn't matter where we are sitting anymore compared to in the 60s potentially where it was a lot about manufacturing as well but you had to be where the plant was let's be clear I'm not saying that Australia doesn't have a future in manufacturing. However, we will have to be clear about the fact that we're not putting together simple items as in the past. It's all about the process. How do we manufacture? How do we get smarter at it? Again, using our heads to use robots potentially to manufacture items, that is the future. And that is the shift and why we're actually independent of location, so to speak. The only thing we need is a good internet connection. Don't worry, that's not a topic I want to go into today. No, we're not going to touch that today. I'm still waiting for the NBN at my house. Oh, are you really? Yes, unfortunately. That is not good. So this is really natural progression. If we think back maybe 10, 20 years ago, people started working from home. We're able to do the dial-ups and we had access to our servers. But we've now got in our profession tax return preparation and other even advisory work being done um, in all sorts of locations, including offshore. That's right. In the first place, we have to benefit, um, especially for um, uh, staff with children, obviously, you can work from home, you've got the flexibility, that's another aspect. But as you rightly mentioned, so offshore workers, right, there's definitely a cost pressure there, um, uh, an obvious attempt to alleviate cost pressures. We can tap into lower wage markets, and that's just the trend in general. That is happening more and more, that the low-end work goes out of Australia. We have to be aware of that. Because of that, education becomes more and more important. At the same time, however, what does that mean? We have to focus on our skills and knowledge again to upscale and the services that we offer. And unfortunately, when we offer these services, Australia is a very small country with a small population. We need to market ourselves internationally. We are competing internationally with everything we do. It's open borders for capital. As I said, we have no capital controls in the OECD, which is the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, basically a rich country club, everyone we work with, we trade with on a daily basis, and it's an outright competition for jobs. If we look at a Google, Microsoft and Amazon, and let's be clear, it's those large multinationals, despite about how we feel about them in regard to tax burden and how much taxation they pay in a jurisdiction, they create jobs en masse. It takes hundreds of small businesses to create the jobs that one of these big players creates by just saying yes we will open up an office in Australia and for that reason we want jobs and growth that's the government's agenda and for that reason we need to make sure that we attract the capital 
and therefore create those jobs. And that's where we are competing. And let's be clear as well, because the capital is so mobile, we don't have capital controls, uh, which is actually a legacy item. We noticed fairly early on in the 30s and 40s that capital controls are detrimental to the world economy. For that reason, we have to make sure that as a country, we are competitive. And investors who move their capital to Australia need to see that they actually get the returns that they attach and could get elsewhere to that capital. Obviously, then the question is, what is the tax burden that the investor pays in Australia? And therefore, we need to have competitive tax rates. Let's have a look perhaps at the personal tax system to begin with. So it's moved around a lot. And I actually had a look at um, some tax rates recently going way back to the early 80s. Now, around 1983, 84, the top tax rate was about 66%. And it kicked in at about $35,000. Now, bear in mind, average wages have gone up significantly since then. Nonetheless, it was a high rate at a fairly low threshold. Now, if we compare that today, we've got 45% kicking in above 180,000, and that's due to kick in at over 200,000 in 2024, assuming that the legislated tax cuts that are already in place do not change in the future, and that's crystal ball gazing. So where does that leave us? We've got these uh, rates at the moment. How does 180,000 as a starting point compare with other countries that we deal with? And perhaps we look at the UK, the US to start with, and of course the Asian region. That's a fantastic question. Thank you very much, Robin. Um, Obviously, we have to keep in mind that since this time, we had a significant amount of inflation in Australia. Our target inflation rate has always been a big high. Regardless, though, our thresholds have definitely increased. That's something we need to acknowledge. And um, I think overall, it is just an acknowledgement to the fact that, again, labour at the high end of the spectrum, the knowledge workers are almost as mobile as capital. If we want to have these high quality jobs, knowledge workers, which are have a very low impact on the environment, um, don't need too much in terms of um, infrastructure that is costly and is only single purpose. Instead, we really only need the internet, which is multi-purpose. Um, that labor can easily relocate to another jurisdiction where the tax rate is higher. Um, one scenario of one location, which many or two locations, which many of our listeners are familiar with, would be Singapore and Hong Kong. And we're looking at effective tax rates of 18% from $180,000. Roughly, Singapore dollars are Australian dollars at this point in time. If you have a top margin rate of 18%, any employee in Australia who's offered to relocate to Singapore, where the employer gets significant tax breaks and a much lower corporate tax rate, the employee will probably be happy to relocate because they have twice the take-home salary or even more due to low margin rates. Again, keep in mind, it's the high income earners who will be offered that relocation potentially. Therefore, we need to be competitive in, competitive in our high marginal rates and why we went from 66% to 45%. We've got to be mindful of making direct comparisons because we could say, well, they're kicking in at 18% over 180,000, whereas we're kicking in basically at 45%. But let's go to a completely different jurisdiction, Scandinavia. It is well known that they have reasonably higher rates of uh, GST or value-added tax, 
and their income tax rates are not low. But they provide so much in the way of government services, education, health, transport, etc. So it's so important to look at the big picture and say, well, it's not just how much tax is being paid, but what's being provided back in return. So when we make the comparison between Singapore and Australia, is it reasonable to say, well, yes, there's lower tax, but are they getting things that we're not for that? That's right. Or that's they're not an getting things point. rather that, that we are. That's right. That's an excellent point. And that's where it comes down to policy. Um, which policy does a government or across all parties, which policy does the nation want to, per, want to pursue? Um, obviously, uh, Scandinavia, as an example, has a much stronger inclination towards a government providing these services services rather than a private entity. That has cultural reasons partially as well. Um, the reason why the Scandinavian regions can um, afford a much bigger social spend as well is that a lot of money was actually saved from raw materials and commodities put into sovereign investment funds which are now yielding return. But at the same point in time, as you've rightly pointed out, there is just a general belief that we want to tax more in order to spend more. Is that a luxury that we have, or not a luxury, but do we have the ability to do that in Asia? That is the big question because I think the Australian public acknowledged about 10, 15 years ago in general that Australia is part of Asia. We're not part of Europe for that reason. And therefore our direct competition is potentially right next door in Asia and not at the other end of the planet. Let's make another comparison, China. Chinese tax rates, and I'm not familiar with these. So how does this compare with our Australian rates? That's an interesting question. I'm aware that in China, tax rates are partially negotiable. Um, I don't think many taxpayers actually pay the headline rate. You'd probably more look at the uh, individual taxpayer at a lower marginal level. High income earners can always negotiate their rate over there. It is interesting that you mentioned China because China is actually pursuing the belts and road policy. And what that means is that China is spending heavily on capital investment, i.e. to build infrastructure, not only in China alone, but also in many other countries where they have an economic interest, farming interests in Africa, for example, knowledge, IP interests in Europe, natural resources in Australia, and ports, airstrips, railway lines from the mine side to the next port. And that is the roads we're talking about. They want to basically relaunch the Silk Road 2.0 just to get those resources. At the same time, by doing this, they're actually trying to establish a dependency economically. And that is the belt. We are getting them closer to home. Look, it's interesting, Michael. I have come across this concept of belt and road twice this week. And basically, it's about uh, reigniting a, a relationship or a connection to what they regard as their biggest trading partner, Europe. And the questions are now being asked that if you've got this uh, trading route being reopened, and it is the old Silk Road, if we think back to the time when basically there was that um, trading route from China through to, to Russia, um, we're going to have potentially Australia being on the outer of this particular negotiation and, and these trade deals. That's exactly right. Um, if China tries to realign their economic interests to Europe, and China, we have to be clear as well, is trying to pursue a more modern economy, less energy and resource intensive. Why? Because that was not a focus in the past. Um, coal power was used. Air is unbreathable. We've all seen the pictures from China. So where does that leave our coal industry, for example? We're, that, we're highly dependent on them as one of our major trading partners. That is exactly the right question. And um, since China is the biggest investor in solar power, not 
only as in uh, absolute numbers, but also in relative numbers per household, per citizens, we know that that shift will eventually change. China as well is significantly investing into nuclear power, which means that eventually coal power, which is only a makeshift solution because it's quick to build, easy to start up, will probably not be the resource of the future, the energy resource of the future, because that enables China to become more self-sufficient. Again, where does that leave Australia? Our energy and, and general commodity exports will probably suffer. And let's be clear, that's a big part of our economy. For that reason, do we need to absorb that reduced demand by offering goods and services skills to the world in general to trade? As I said earlier, manufacturing, we're a small country. We have to ship everything. Manufacturing itself, unless it's very, very high end, is not the solution as we have seen. Therefore, it needs to be high end manufacturing. Again, skills and knowledge. And that's why we need to make sure that we attract those skills and knowledge that multiplies, that we attract the necessary capital to deploy those skills and knowledge. And the answer to that usually and specifically in the OECD, has been lower tax rates. Now, this comes back to the government's policy in 2016 about intending to reduce the corporate tax rate. Their whole thinking behind this was we need to drop our rate to be internationally competitive because we're starting to stand out in terms of a 30% rate. So it seemed a simple enough policy, drop the rate by 5% over a 10 year period. Now we have spent previous time in other Taxiac episodes talking about the corporate tax cuts and the, and the delays and the saga and the four bills that it took, one of which was defeated in the Senate to actually implement those tax cuts. So. When I've been talking about this at length over the last 12 months, we've ended up with a situation where those under 50 million companies that are base rate entities are now on a reduced tax rate and will continue to fall over the next few years down to 25%. Those, of course, 50 million or more remain on the higher 30% rate. But if we look at this in the sorts of uh, terms that we're talking about this morning, the companies that are under 50 mil turnover tend not to play on the global stage. They are typically owned by mum and dad or at least resident shareholders, which means that a company is just a holding pattern until it pays out the dividend and then top up tax payable at the marginal rate. So ironically, any tax cut that is available to those companies is really just a deferral of additional tax payable by the resident shareholders. Contrast that with those that are 50 mil or higher who are on the global stage, who do want to attract that international investment, who are often owned by international shareholders, and they're not getting the lower rate. So has this policy actually ended up with the complete opposite result of what the government sought? That's right. Very good point, Robin. Um, I think we need to be aware that we always talk about headline rate of 30%. Um, unfortunately, most of the discussion, including consultations, Board of Taxation, government policies, often ignore the topic of an effective rate. What we need to factor into our company tax rate as well is the other items such as the speed of depreciation and direct incentives. For example, R&D offsets. We're talking about R&D offsets in the region of 30 to 40% in our country. Um, Singapore is offering 200%. Um, where would you set up your R&D um, incentives? 
comparing effective corporate tax rates actually shows that Australia is somewhat still in the top range of most OECD countries. The UK probably stands out a bit with a, I believe, 19% rate. Canada is somewhat competitive. America has been traditionally not as competitive. However, recent tax cuts under the Trump government have obviously changed that slightly towards a lower rate. The important thing is, however, as you rightly pounded, the important thing, however, as you rightly pointed out, is that in Australia we have an imputation system for company tax, which only exists in a similar form in New Zealand, nowhere else. So even though as the body corporate actually pays that tax in the first place, very often it's refunded to residents or non-residents get a foreign tax offset in their local now, jurisdiction similar to that. is obviously a very pivotal and controversial topic of conversation and I don't think today we can go into the whole labour policy about Absolutely the refundable franking credit. Absolutely not. That is not the plan. However, it means that our effective corporate tax rate in Australia is actually lower than most people think. Because so of the, the franking credits that are applied against exactly the Exactly right. We are raising less corporate tax than we actually think we do. And that is a policy area which would need further discussion. I think an educated discussion because most legislators aren't even aware of the fact what the net outcome is. Treasury will certainly be aware, but probably isn't telling the right story or the whole story. And the public is not educated. And for that reason, that is something we need to look into. But that's a topic in itself. The bottom line, however, is though that that we need to be competitive with our tax rate. Whether we want to encourage that through offsets, faster depreciation, or through a lower tax rate, overall headline tax rate, that is the big question. Again, that is a large and lengthy discussion that depends on policy. However, we need to be aware that our headline rate is actually quite high in comparison. And we're probably not always talking about the big banks, which should not get a tax cut, do we want to attract foreign capital, yes or no, to attract these quality jobs or create those quality jobs as well? That is the question we have to ask ourselves. And not too long ago, on the individual taxpayer front, we have actually taken steps with Division 768R, which treats temporary tax residents differently to attract that foreign talent in the sense that they are only assessed on Australian source income while they are tax resident of Australia. Well, for that matter, we've actually got another policy again, which is the backpackers' rates. And that's a separate category of taxpayer in terms of the way that they're assessed and the rates they are subject to. Do we sometimes get too caught up in really fine detail that at the end of the day detracts from the broader conversation about international policy and what we should be achieving with our tax system? Some of the tax changes that we deal with in our training sessions are so finicky and so micro in detail and often they're just timing differences or it's only affecting a number of taxpayers. But really, should we be looking at the bigger picture about how can we use our tax system to make it robust and attract investment and generate jobs and productivity? And these are all great buzzwords. But at the end of the day, when we're trying to generate you know, productivity and work and make sure that we've got investment and confidence in the economy, I'm just wondering if we're getting it right with our tax system. That is a very good point, And I couldn't agree with you more, Robin. Um, we have to ask ourselves, what do we want to achieve? Do we want to make sure that 100% every tax law is with complied with and we think about every possible scenario? And no matter what the compliance cost is, we will make sure we will recover the last dollar, even if it costs us 100 
$100 to do so? Or do we actually want a easy to understand tax system? I mean, for those of you who did their tax studies recently, you will know that the basic purpose of every taxation system is to raise government or to meet revenue, to raise revenue to meet government expenditure. At the same time, there are two key features to make any tax system a good tax system. Number one, that it's universally understood I think we don't have that at the moment in Australia at all. And number two, that it gives certainty. We don't have that either with retrospective taxation. And especially in the field of universally understood, I notice that a lot of not only taxpayers, but also tax agents out there struggle with our residency rules. Unfortunately, our residency rules date back partially to the 1800s. We're talking about a concept of domicile, which is defined in the Domiciles Act. And unfortunately, it defines your domicile as where your father was born. My father was born in Germany, yet he's American. And I'm Australian, I grew up in Singapore. Why is my domicile in Germany? I don't know for that matter, but that is what matters in our Taxation Act. And we have the funny example of the Harding case recently, where a taxpayer that hadn't lived for many years in Australia, had been renting a service department in uh, Bahrain and beforehand in Saudi Arabia where everything was included. We're talking about the internet, the cable TV, the housekeeping, the room service and the laundry service and whatnot. And because of that, it turned out as per the second limb of our section 6-1, what makes a tax resident in Australia, the poor gentleman who had not set foot into Australia for many months, was here only on holidays, was deemed to be a tax resident because he did not pay his own internet himself. Because it was deemed to not have, that he didn't have a permanent place of abode. Why? Because he didn't own his own furniture. Should we be looking at our overall definition of a resident for tax purposes? So if we look at Harding, he'd been overseas since the age of 16. He had been overseas for all but three years, which were actually not the tax years in question before the court. And I think what's really interesting with Harding is you spoke um, a few minutes ago about the concepts of, of domicile. Now, the Board of Taxation is currently looking at the residency rules. So they've identified issues with our concept of what is resident, place of abode, domicile. These are old fashioned concepts. They date back to a time where if somebody moved overseas, you went by ship because there was no commercial airline travel. You packed up your whole life in crates. You spent three months on a voyage and it was pretty clear where you were living. These days, in the case of Harding, he was a 14 hour flight away from the Middle East. His wife and kids were living back here at the time. We talk about this mobile workforce and because his mail wasn't being delivered to overseas, it was being delivered to his Australian address and his wife lived here and he happened to be in a finished apartment where that is fairly standard, by the way, to be leasing a finished apartment in the Middle East. He was deemed to be a resident of Australia because he hadn't established this permanent place of abode overseas. And clearly, and I agree with the Board of Tax, we've moved on from those old days and those old concepts. And yet our tax law hasn't kept up with the modern mobile worker who is able to work anywhere, engage anywhere. And even families these days are modern. The idea that home is where the wife and kids are yeah, no longer sits, it's no longer the case. That's right. And two points absolutely stand out. Number one, do we need to adjust our tax law to bring it up to date? Um, we inherited our 
definition of a tax resident pretty much from the British. Um, they got rid of the concept in the last five years. New Zealand had the same definition, got rid of it as well. Canada had a similar definition, got rid of it about seven years ago and replaced it with something simpler. The Board of Taxation recommended actually a very, very simple headline test. Have you been in the country for 183 days? If so, you were a tax resident. If not, you weren't. There's supposed to be a second supplementary test to assure that there's a bit of integrity around this rule. However, it would be really easy to comply. You can count the days in your passport and up the stamps, what the dates are, and you know whether you've been in the country for 183 days. What is the problem with that, however? that probably the political will is suffering. That would be a policy that would be very hard to sell. And again, it probably goes to our politics in general, the way we create policy and communicate the policy. Should we probably be stopping a bit of rhetoric on the policy and clearly identify the issues we're facing? I personally think that this would actually increase the integrity of our tax system. It would achieve the simplicity, the ability to comply and the certainty around the tax system. However, you can obviously imagine the outcry from the public if such a policy was announced. But that's where we're coming back full circle to our OECD comparisons, our competitors in the regional neighborhood and in Europe and obviously in the United States. Where do we want to go as a country? Do we want to be a high taxing, high spending economy? And even if we are, that is fine. However, how do we make sure that we attract foreign talent, labor and capital in the first place? How do we make sure that foreign investors get their return that they're seeking on the capital to make sure that capital comes into the country? The two aims are not necessarily conflicting. And we have actually gone a long way in the sense that we have final rates of tax. For example, the Australian um, company tax paid, that is a final rate of tax for non-residents, even though we have higher marginal rates for those residents on Australian source income. We need to have the discussion, what is actually the plan? And we need to highlight the risks of higher taxation without a plan. It's easy to say we're taxing non-residents at a higher rate, like for example, the main residence exemption, which is on the chopping block, unfortunately has been for a while with no certain outcome. And we can do that. The idea is obviously they're non-residents, they probably don't have a vote, therefore it's easy to tax them. But we also need to be honest with the public in regard to what will be the ultimate result. It's nice to say we're going to tax non-residents at top marginal rate, but if no non-resident actually invests in Australia, we're getting top marginal rate of zero income. Looking at this from another perspective, we also have Australians who are going overseas to skill up, get experience, play on the global stage. And Australia can only benefit if those skills and experiences are brought back to Australia. And with the current proposals to deny the main residence exemption for foreign uh, taxpayers, there is a big issue with Australian expats who, and I've had a number of them contact me through LinkedIn over the past year, um, people in Hong Kong and New York and London who have said, we had a home in Australia, we've been living and working overseas for a number of years, we're concerned about that, depending what happens with this government policy that remains before the Senate, we could end up with a, a significant tax bill. They've already sold these properties. And this is on the basis of an announcement. So they've basically cleared out of Australia. They've said to me, we have no financial ties there any longer. Um, they may have parents, they may not, but they may come back to visit as the case may be. But they're saying, why would we come back? 
So it's a, an important issue, not just about people coming in and attracting international investment, but we need to make sure that our Aussies who are going overseas to get this experience come back again so that they bring these skills and experiences to us and, and we benefit from that. That's right. And during my days in Singapore, I had the discussion with a lot of fellow Australian expats. And the bottom line was always, oh, we miss our barbecues, we miss our friends. But at the end of the day, the whole Australian tech system I don't want to have to deal with that anymore. Those were comments from high-income earners. Certainly there are other considerations. And while it is always easy to complain about something that you have, we forget about the good things that we have, we don't mention them. However, complying with those laws is actually quite difficult. In Singapore, there are no accountants for individual taxpayers. You get a text message at the end of the year, dividends are not taxable, interest is not taxable, there's no capital gains tax. Um, you literally get told, by the way, this was your income because there was no pay to go withholding, please pay, for example, $18,000 in three months, and that's the end of your tax affairs. To contrast, if I look at the Australian system, and I haven't got a complete list here, but these are just some of the considerations that someone would need to think about as a mobile worker moving in and out of Australia, or for someone coming in, or someone, of course, who's moving out. The tax rates, the temporary resident rules, the working holiday maker rules. There's a program called the Seasonal Labour Mobility Program. So we attract foreign workers for things like picking fruit and, and so on. Whether income is exempt in Australia, treatment of foreign losses, subject to the Medicare levy. There are non-resident withholding taxes, the treatment of foreign tax offsets for tax paid overseas. And there's a really interesting case that we're discussing at the moment where a credit for tax paid in the US has been denied to the extent of half because the relevant tax was paid on a capital gain that of course only half is subject to tax in Australia. And that's generated a lot of discussion in our sessions lately. Treatment of double tax agreements. CGT event I1 when someone leaves the country as a resident and you're deemed to have disposed of your foreign assets. CGT on foreign assets when you come into the country, you're deemed to acquire them. Treatment of franking credits, the CGT discount, the main residence exemption, foreign resident capital gains withholding rules, departing Australia superannuation payments, and then your control of all your entities. I mean, that's a completely inexhaustive list. And that's an awful lot to think about when you're walking through customs, you're weary, you're tired, you want to do your duty-free shopping, you want to get to your new home as soon as possible, and you've got to turn your mind to all these tax issues. It is fascinating. And we have to keep in mind when a, an expat returns, very often they bring an idea with them. They probably want to set themselves up in business. And one of my favorite items is GSD. Uh, GSD is a very efficient topic, obviously, a very efficient tax, um, which is not distortive, like for example, payroll tax. And then even if it's only a small cafe that they want to set up, um, probably a sea change, go move to the coast or whatever it is. And we find that a muffin can have eight different GSD treatments depending on whether they has nuts or nuts and sultanas or nuts and chocolate chips. I mean, you want to comply with the tax law, but it is just too complex. That is definitely a deterrent. Similarly, all international tax issues are so sometimes bespoke that many accountants even struggle to work it out themselves. Again, is it even feasible? Because the tax year is different. We need to apportion certain amounts. We need to add back foreign depreciation. We can't take the amount from the foreign tax return. When can we claim our foreign income tax offset? Only when the tax is paid. What is the amendment period? We need to amend this tax return. Again, as you highlighted earlier, we might have sold our main residence. We still don't know two years after the policy announcement whether the bill will actually proceed and in which form it will proceed what have we done and unfortunately most taxpayers actually want to comply but unfortunately we might be in a situation where we say just lodge the tax return and hope the amendment period is over and 
let's just hope we get away with it. Michael, I want to share with you, I went to a discussion group this week and we had a, a guest speaker, Ken Feely, who's a, a GST expert in Australia. And it just highlights to me the fickleness of some of our laws. And um, I don't remember the old days of sales tax where we had completely inconsistent treatment for different products. But he was telling us under GST, if you've got two identical lasagnas, frozen lasagnas in the supermarket, one of them is just a photograph of the piece of lasagna. In other words, it's a complete meal and you take it home and you take it out of its wrapping and you stick it in the microwave. That is taxable because that is a ready-made meal. And we know it's not fresh food. But the other product, which has a few vegetables as a serving suggestion on the side, that lasagna now becomes an ingredient in a broader meal and therefore it now becomes GST free. Now, there is no rhyme and reason as to why that particular product should have a different tax treatment just because one has a photograph of some additional ingredients on the back of the packaging. But that's where we've landed with some of these rules. Now, that's away from international tax, but I'm just highlighting that when you've got inconsistent treatment and people trying to comply with it, I put up a a post on LinkedIn yesterday. It was almost a bit of a utopia. Wouldn't it be lovely to have a tax system where things happen efficiently, where law is clear, where we don't need thousands of pages of guidance from the tax office every year to explain to us what the provisions in the Act actually mean, where we don't need to spend thousands of dollars to professional advisors to interpret the laws and comply with our obligations and know what our entitlements are. And of course, nation, if not years, to clear Parliament. And that, again, is actually our comparison to the OECD. Look at New Zealand, for example. We Aussies can just up and leave and move to New Zealand tomorrow. Yes, the weather wouldn't be as good, but GST would be a lot simpler. And so would CGT. Absolutely. CGT would not be an issue anymore at all. Right, we would have a higher rate of tax, but most importantly, quite a lot of tax is actually raised from that additional GST because it is applied to pretty much everything. And for that reason... The business and complying with all the rules and regulations around taxation would be so much easier. A small cafe with three employees, all of a sudden you have three more jobs in Auckland rather than in Sydney. That is the bottom line here and we need to look at this. Michael, we've been chatting for a bit over half an hour. I'm not convinced we've actually reached any solutions. But it's great to have a chat about where we are with this tax system and how we sit internationally. Absolutely. And it is a start. Maybe if we look back in 25 years, people will say, you know what? Robin Jacobson and Michael Messner, they made it happen. (laughs) Let's only hope. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. Before we wrap up this episode, we'd like to say thank you to our listeners for your support so far and all the great feedback you've given us with a special offer. On Wednesday, the 3rd of April, TaxBanter will be conducting our annual webinar on the federal budget, and we're offering all our listeners a 10% discount when you register with promo code TAXYAC19, that's TAXYAC19. This offer is only being offered here to our valued TaxYAC listeners, and we hope you continue to enjoy our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are, because it will help to improve the profile of the show. You can use Siri to find our show by simply saying, play Taxiac or subscribe to Taxiac. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au slash banter hyphen blog.
We look forward to you joining us next time. Bye.